Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we have a special episode focusing on the preliminary data release for the Lean Mass Hyper Responder Study. Now, the background, we've talked about this before on the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dave Feldman with his hypothesis of why LDL is elevated in someone who's on a ketogenic diet, that it's because of, of energy needs, basically an energy transport. He's published papers about his lean mass hyperresponder phenotype and his uh, mechanistic hypothesis about the energy model. Um, and now he has been designing, uh, along with Dr. Matt Budoff and others, an, an actual study to measure uh, with a CT angiogram, the amount of plaque at baseline, and one year later for those who have elevated LDL while following a ketogenic diet. And of course, meeting other criteria that we will discuss, otherwise very healthy, basically. Um, he presented the preliminary data at Low Carb San Diego, and there was a lot of excitement and on social media, a lot of pushback. And part of this has to do with just our own interpretations, people's individual interpretations and reactions to the presentation rather than the presentation itself. So what I wanna do in this episode is we're gonna talk with Dave and we're gonna talk with uh, Dr. Matt Budoff and we're gonna go over uh, sort of the intention of presenting the data, the caution of how to interpret the data, what it shows, what it doesn't show, um, and what we can learn from it and you know what the future is going to show for this study. So I think we're going to cover a lot of interesting topics that will really help clear the air. So let's get on with this with the rest of this interview. So first year, we're going to hear from Dave Feldman. You've probably seen on the Diet Doctor podcast before. He's been on multiple times and he's an engineer and a citizen scientist. But he's not just your average engineer. I mean, he comes up with great theories and philosophies um, and partial mechanistic uh, hypotheses about LDL and its role in atherosclerosis, especially with the, within the low-carb setting. But he doesn't stop with his theories. He takes the next step to organize the study to try and find the result. And that's what we're talking about today. And he deserves a huge, uh, a huge applause and recognition for taking the step to organize the study. Whether you agree with the way the study was designed or the outcomes or the data or anything, just the fact that he's an engineer, non-medically trained, putting his hat in the ring to say, I'm going to try and make a difference here and gather data, not just spout hypotheses, but gather data. So with that, uh, with that intro, you can find him at cholesterolcode.com, uh, citizensciencefoundation.org, uh, ownyourlabs.com, trying to help people get access to less expensive labs on their own. And of course, on Twitter, uh, the real Dave Feldman. So let's hear from Dave Feldman. Well, Dave Feldman, great to see you again on the podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on, Brett. I'm doing good. Good, good. You know, I just saw you a couple of days ago at Low Carb San Diego, and you had some big news. You know, there was a big, a lot of excitement around your talk where you uh, revealed some of the preliminary data from your study that you're doing along with others uh, to look at people with uh, the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype with high LDL who are on a ketogenic diet with high HDL, low triglycerides, and getting baseline CT angiograms on them along with genetic tests and other blood markers, with the goal being to follow them for one year to see for plaque progression. Now, you presented some initial data, which has created quite a bit of excitement and some, some blowback and criticism. So why don't you give us sort of the, the summary of what that data was, and then we can get into the details of sort of what it means and what the reactions have been and how we should be interpreting this. 
Sure. It was certainly a major benchmark. Uh, it was about a one-year snapshot of data. So I had announced the lean mass hyperresponder study last year at about the same time, literally within days of when we had the one year of uh, preliminary data up to that point, which includes 64 participants. Uh, the baseline demographics were quite interesting. We have about an average age of 53 years and about 66% male. Uh, granted, that's a little a little heavy on the male side, but frankly, to be, to be very upfront, I if we were going to lean in one direction or the other, I'd prefer the the side that's a little bit higher risk. Which, sorry if you didn't know this, Brett, but <laughs> you and I are as males a little bit more likely to develop atherosclerosis. Right. But particularly being middle age, fifty three was. I mean, one of the worst scenarios we could have ran into is if it was, frankly, a lot of very young females, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I did I did like a lot of the means as they looked. And then sure enough, as I showed, there was an interview with Dr. Matt Budoff, our principal investigator, where we talked through a lot of these top lines along with uh, the calcification score, though that's not the major endpoint of interest, the non-calcified plaque is. And so we had some qualitative analysis, not quantitative, qualitative analysis on both the uh, calcification and on this total plaque score. And probably the most exciting thing is that indeed the total plaque score was a bit lower than what would be expected uh, for that population, particularly given, and here's probably um, the biggest uh, line, I guess you could say, is that even though it was a two-year eligibility, you need to be on the diet for two or more years. We had an average of just over four years for these participants. So a fairly sizable amount of time and at an average of 233 LDL cholesterol, Mm -hmm. which turns out if you look at it against NHANES is in not just the top 1% of the total population of say NHANES, but actually in the top 10% of the top 1%. So fairly um, fairly decent population, a good cohort to actually take a look at this question. Yeah, so so very interesting baseline data. But, and rightly so, some of the pushback you've been getting is that this is not, you know, outcome data. This is not the intended data of the study to measure plaque progression. This is baseline data, which is interesting, but can you really draw conclusions from it? I mean, for sure, I would, I was saying this in the presentation, I'll say this now, A, it's preliminary and that I would not want anyone to overinterpret it. It's, it's at an early stage. It is crude data. So I mentioned earlier that this is a qualitative analysis, not a quantitative analysis. Think of a qualitative as a, as a bit more high level. And granted, Dr. Budoff reviews all these scans for safety and is able to make those qualitative measurements. Uh, the quantitative measurements are a lot more granular, and they get a lot more detailed. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the difference between, say, a 50,000-foot view and a, you know, a five-foot view or something along those lines. You can still get a fairly good sense of what the uh, actual levels of, say, plaque are, but that's important to understand when talking about preliminary data. Right. But you're exactly right. The outcome we're most interested in is going to be the longitudinal data, or to put another way, the comparison data. So it's not just what we have at baseline, but it's also what we're going to have after each person completes their year and gets the second scan. And then we can compare the first scan to the second scan. Why this has been pretty exciting for us is this is the first time that we've been able to even get a baseline glimpse at all. 
I mean, that's what's so fascinating, Brett, is you and I, we've speculated for a long time, as have so many other low carbers, as to whether at least this is a clear and present uh, degree of high risk such that uh, this study might even get closed earlier because we would find that there was indeed a lot of plaque at baseline, even for what would otherwise be assumed to be a relatively low risk population other than the high levels of LDL. So that's very important to be clear about. So because a lot of people reading or seeing the, the preliminary results or looking at the study want to know, does this apply to me? So if someone has type 2 diabetes or it doesn't meet that criteria, then no, you are at a different risk profile than the people enrolled in this study. And that's something you've been very clear about from the beginning, but I think it's important to be very explicit here about that as well. So people can know, does this sort of reflect their type of population or not? And because the findings were as you said, sort of better than expected in terms of um, plaque amount of plaque and calcium scores. Part of it could be because it's sort of a selected lower risk population with really the only risk factor being that elevated LDL. Would you say that's accurate? I would say that's accurate. And, and quite literally, this is what we were going for, yeah. is we wanted to specifically get a population that didn't have otherwise traditional cardiovascular risk factors, but save the one of interest extraordinarily high levels of LDL. Yeah. Now, I do yeah. want to be sure that I inject with um, absolute passion that not only is this preliminary, but everybody's individual care is individual. So while this may be six to four individuals, while this may look great, uh, and while I think that this is a very big deal, I'm sure you'd agree with me that it's not the only deal. This is kind of the first big step in what I believe is going to need many more steps to come. And I know that we're sort of in a space, Brett, where things are often kind of placed in a black and white kind of, uh, you know, series of categories. I really think when it comes to atherosclerosis, as much as I may be cautiously optimistic about this population, that there is so much more that we still have to learn. And everybody should be treating it exactly like that as, as something that while this data is coming in and while it's very exciting, um, I at the same time wouldn't want anyone to... Uh, have this effect their individual care too predominantly. Yeah, that's well said, um, and a very important take home. Now, the it seems like the excitement is coming from the fa the fact that the plaque, the presence of plaque, was lower than expected for people who have had LDL an average of two thirty three for four years when they're age, you know, fifty five or so, like you like you said in the in the findings. But is that actually compared to a cohort similarly, or is that more just sort of like what people expect and the comparison will, is going to happen later in the study? And here's where it does get kind of important to emphasize. We don't have a control group in our study. What we are going to do, though, is we're going to do matched comparisons with Miami Heart, uh, which is another study that's being done that Dr. Budoff, I know you'll be chatting with soon, can talk about a little bit more in depth but for which we can actually pull a number of people for which they also don't have as many cardiovascular risk factors and not have high LDL, but for which we can get a sense of how another low risk group of roughly the, say, the same age, same demographics mm -hmm. would match up. Now, all of that said, there is something important to note here, which is that the existing lipid hypothesis is in a sense its own control with regard to the expectation of a dose-dependent log-linear association of the LDL to resulting cardiovascular disease. I'm sure you've seen many of the heuristics that are out there that 
Uh, there's many great papers, including the, the very famous one, uh, the review from EAS that came in 2017, that shows that this is, this is remarkably you know, consistent across all of these different lines of evidence. So the first biggest question is, is there a line of evidence where we can look to those people who don't have some form of dysfunction in lipid metabolism, such as one you're born with, like FH, or one you ultimately acquire, such as diabetes and atherogenic dyslipidemia. And that's what I think lean mass hyperresponders can bring to us is this is now a time where we can look at this high level of LDL without that dysfunction, possibly. It's a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And see if we see that same level of dose-dependent log linear risk. Because as you know, an LDL of 200 shouldn't be twice as bad as an LDL of 100. Technically, it's several fold worse. And as you work out these graphs, and especially going through these heuristics, you see why. So for example, um, I think they're using, in some cases, milligram years. It's kind of like pack years with smoking, yeah. for which you can start kind of calculating how the risk increases, and it is cumulative past a certain point. And the one that I'm thinking of, I think it starts at around age 40, if that person was, say, at an LDL of 125. And here we're looking at a population that's at, say, 53 with an LDL of you know 233 for four years. That actually increases on the curve. But I think here's kind of the important take home for me, or at least the thing that I'm focusing on a lot right now, is the big magnitude question is easier to answer than the small magnitude question. Is it a, is it a high risk group or a low risk group? I think we can get to that answer sooner. Hmm. Then is it a low risk suboptimal group versus a low risk optimal group? Because I'm sure you agree that right now, the vast majority of lean mass hyperresponders could have excellent cardiovascular risk factors across the board, save an LDL of 233. They're not walking into their doctor's office and the doctor's office is going, oh, actually you're, you're pretty low risk, but you could be slightly better. Yeah. You'd be slightly better if you had lower LDL. No, they would consider it very high risk. The guidelines consider it high risk. And as always, they could be right which is why we want to get this data to better understand. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because, I, I mean, I see so many patients who said, my doctor tells me I'm a, a ticking time bomb and a walking heart attack and I'm going to have a heart attack any any day now. And that's certainly not science-based, but it's very emotional. Um, so will this data help tamper that down knowing it's preliminary, knowing it's, you know, there's not a control group, right? All the caveats, just this sort of observational data, I, I, that's what I get where you're going with this, that that maybe it would allow the doctors to take a breath and be like, okay, this is definitely not optimal. The guidelines say it should be treated, but maybe I need to check myself as a doctor and say, you know, tamper my my strength of the immediacy of the risk. Do you think that's an accurate statement that's reflected in this data or even that level we can't really conclude yet? I think patients and their doctors, it's very individual. And I, and I think that's a good thing for a lot of patients, certainly a lot of folks that are part of the groups. They say, look, my doctor just wants something, some data so that I can at least discuss with them some option that's, you know, in the middle, such as, Hey, um, my doctor would be more okay with me going and getting a CAC scan to determine my risk. But right now they say, I don't even see if there's any point because all the data I've ever seen shows high LDL being high risk. So what's the point of getting a CAC? Mm -hmm. So in that example, it might be that that could be something that would matter for the fence sitting. Again, I wouldn't want to interject or, or, uh, you know, 
press that this data should have that impact. But if it did, that might be relevant. But again, that's between the patient and the doctor. So one other cool um, part about the preliminary data you released was the prevalence of FH. I think if you look at a general population, uh, FH being familial hypercholesterolemia, if you look at the general population of people with an average LDL of 233, there's going to be a pretty high percentage of people with familial hypercholesterolemia. Again, we would need sort of a, a, a similar control group um, to reference to, to find out. But in this study, how many people had FH of the uh, original participants that you sh shared the data with? Budoff mentioned that we just had one that uh, had, I believe it was monogenetic hetero uh, heterozygous FH, at least heterozygous FH that actually yeah. showed up on the genetic testing. But this is important, Brett, because this is why there's kind of a confluence of, I guess you could say, scientific opportunity that all came together at the same time. It wasn't just that I personally went on a ketogenic diet and seven years ago I saw my cholesterol go up under any other circumstances. I was part of kind of the wave of people going low carb who saw this outcome. Were it not for a lot of people who are now in this leaner possibly more athletic state who would have observed this quote unquote hyper response, we wouldn't have this pattern recognition and then ultimately this cohort that we could be looking at. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of the irony is you're right at probably any other point before now, before the rise of the ketogenic diet, we wouldn't have had the scientific opportunity to sort of look at it in this light separated from the genetic um, aspect that can result in the higher levels of LDL. Again, that dysfunction in lipid metabolism, typical of monogenetic FH, is what I'm especially interested in, in separating those two things out and how much the higher LDL is independent of that and its association with atherosclerosis. Yeah, I think that's a, a great learning point for all clinicians. And again, even if it's not part of the outcome data or you know the primary outcome data, it's a lesson in FH, in what FH is for clinicians to know. Because again, I see so many patients saying, I have an LDL of 200 and my doctor said I have familiar hypercholesterolemia, no questions asked and you know, no room to debate it. And, and that's not true. And so that's where doctors need to become familiar with the Dutch criteria and the Simon Broom criteria. And this is the perfect example of how something else can raise your LDL beyond FH. It doesn't mean there aren't some other genetic involvement that we just don't know about yet, but that's very different from having LDL that's elevated from the moment of birth because of FH. And I think that's a, a great learning point um, from this preliminary data. So beyond the FH data and the preliminary um, plaque burden data, um, are there other nuggets or take-homes from the preliminary data, or at this point, is it we've learned what we're going to learn and now we wait for the, the one-year data? There's discussion right now on a paper that we may ultimately be putting out on preliminary data, which uh, may or may not include more. I can't say that much on that because, of course, this is ultimately up to our principal investigator, Dr. Budoff. And there's certainly a lot of insights. I'm so many more. <laughs> <laughs> that I wish uh, we could be looking into, but that rightly are carefully controlled so as to preserve the level of blinding we need for um, the uh, outcome data to have the strongest uh, validity, right? So let me give you some examples. We're measuring LP little a. Oh, We're cool. measuring C-reactive protein. We 
uh, we'll also have data on LDL particle size on uh, ApoB and ApoA1. There's also very high level lipid data that we're going to be getting out of Finland, but we have to send frozen samples to them. We're going to do it in one batch because it's crazy expensive to send frozen blood <laughs> samples overseas. And that probably won't be until like the very end of the study, but it will give us a new level of insight on exactly how lean mass hyperresponders compare. And we'll actually have a great comparison group with say the UK biobank. Uh, so we can actually see these compositions. Let me give you an example of something that I'm excited about, but I know we're years away from knowing, but that I can't wait to get from this data set, which is I've long held the belief that lean mass hyperresponders will find that the lipoproteins, particularly ApoB containing lipoproteins, they will have a different composition of a higher level of cholesterol, lower level of triglycerides than you would find in the same size LDL particles with, say, somebody with severe type 2 diabetes, which, by the way, matches with the lipid energy model. Somebody with severe type 2 diabetes is probably going to have a higher triglyceride versus cholesterol composition in their LDL particles. And I realized the current paradigm is to go, oh, so then that must mean if this is more associated with atherosclerosis than this, this must be more of an atherogenic particle. But as you know, Brett, from knowing me a long time, I think that actually more of these lipid patterns are a reflection of the state of atherogenicity more so than they are independently atherogenic. This isn't to say that I'm ruling out the latter, just that I think metabolic health and how it is reflected in our lipid profiles, I think in time will become a much more um, important thing to look at and to understand. And, and I I honestly think lean mass hyperresponders will be a big step forward in bringing us to that level of understanding, but that's just my hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, and that's what you do. You come up with very clever and well thought out hypotheses, which doesn't prove anything, but then you've shown that you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, to try and design a study to elucidate that. Now, to design a study to quote unquote prove it is very challenging. It takes a lot of money, a lot of people, a lot of time. So what you have here is a, basically a pilot study to get the ball rolling. But that's part of the pushback of the way the study is designed and the outcomes and the duration. And you're not going to have enough people. It's not long enough. Atherosclerosis is a decades-long process. And um, this isn't going to show anything. I guess you know that's some of the pushback. So... One, do you think it's valid? And two, you know, the concept of uh, if you can't do the, the end-all study, why bother doing you know, the preliminary study? I don't agree with that statement, but that's sort of a lot of the, the pushback I think you're getting. Um, so I'm curious how you respond to that. Well, first of all, I think, yeah, a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback that I myself would give in the course of designing and developing this and raising money for it and so on and so forth. Data comes in a spectrum and always has. Again, I know we're in a space that likes to just try to find a way to just cast all data out the door, depending on the nature of what it is, right? But I think it's fine for a lot of data, for example, to be considered hypothesis generating. Certainly, I feel a lot of epidemiology is exactly that, right? But in the case of this, we had a very unusual circumstance. We had people who we knew would likely be at levels that, by current guidelines, should be on the maximally tolerated uh, dose of statin without any further consideration. If you have an LDL of 190 or higher, is the current guidelines that it doesn't matter whatever other cardiovascular risk factors you have, 
you should be taking very serious steps to lower it. Right. And therefore, even just trying to determine if this is a high risk population or not is important. Well, of course, we were going to run into challenges in trying to get a population that may have history of diabetes or uh, heart disease or anything else that might be a little bit more commonplace in the average uh, standard American population. So exactly as you said, as a pilot study, this at least says, hey, what's our best shot at trying to really isolate the higher LDL and its outcome as is commonly referred to for those um, such as, you know, children born with homozygous FH. Uh, I mentioned the seminal work of Brown and Goldstein. They bring forward that point, and it's a compelling point that, hey, if it's just the concentration of LDL, not the dysfunction of lipid metabolism, to explain this higher level of atherosclerosis, then sure, we should be able to find people like we're doing in this study with everything else looking stellar, but with very high LDL and thus very high ApoB, uh, demonstrating atherosclerosis in a fairly short amount of time. And again, I, I just want to state one more time. It doesn't mean that this study will effectively get to that granular level. I think it's a defensible position if many people are saying, hey, I think that these are a low-risk population, but that they could be even lower risk if their LDL were lower. And this study won't be good at finding that out, which I said on the announcement of it. But the big magnitude question, we do have, I mean, we do have an expectation that the high LDL will show this. And I don't know if that's what we're going to see, but we'll find out, particularly once we have the longitude longitudinal data in hand. I like how you phrase that, that there, there are different questions that are brought up um, anytime you're talking about LDL and cardiovascular risk. And this study is not going to address all of them for sure. Um, what first study ever does, right? But it's, I, I, I don't know, I think it's important to view it for what it is, a pilot study that's going to show proof of concept in a way, and then hopefully open the spectrum for bigger funding sources, bigger studies, longer studies that will continue to look at this. I mean, this is not an end-all be-all. But one question is, so the average is 233 for the LDL, but yet we see examples of lean mass hyper-responders with LDLs of 400, 500, 600. Do you think the findings of this study with the average LDL being what it is will also apply to the LDL of 400 and 500? Because if it is, you know, the, the energy metabolism and not a dysregulation of lipid metabolism, um, then one theory would be it doesn't matter how high it is, the same, the same conclusions apply. And I know this is hypothesis, so I wanna, I wanna couch it as such, but, or do you think there could still be some effect of the gradation? And if it's five or 600, that's very different than the 200 or 250. Kind of putting you on the spot there. No, it's fine. It's, it's an important question. And I'm gonna be very upfront in that I actually think a, Threshold point from a strict physics standpoint has never made a lot of sense to me, at least in terms of, hey, we may find you know, an LDL of 200 or 250 is actually fine, but an LDL of 300 or 400 is the point in which the lipid hypothesis, as we understand it in the broader sense, sort of kicks in. Uh, once you actually get in and I did, I, I've kind of gotten into the math of what the actual size in volume of LDL particles were in mass against total blood volume was. I, this is just a geeky exercise, but for example, the typical LDL particle is like, say, tw let's say 22.5 nanometers. 
And if you figure out what the surface to volume is and compile them all together for what might be like, say, um, let's say that you've got 500 nanomoles of LDL particles. Sorry if I'm going to lose a whole lot of people. I'll be quick. This will just take like 60 <laughs> seconds, right? Um, but I, I figured this out for 2,000 nanomoles. It, I think it came to somewhere in the thousandths, I want to say something like uh, one two thousandth of total blood volume if my blood volume were, say, five liters of what the total size would be. So if, if you think it has to do with actual viscosity, like there's literally so many LDL particles that it's actually disruptive in that fashion, um, I'm just less convinced given what I've learned in that regard. But that changes once you have something like hypertriglyceridemia. Then you can actually see, you can see the uh, LDL particles in mass given their volume is now super large, mm. right? Because that's that's a lot of, um, say, chylomicrons, which are more like 1.2 uh, microns. Again, sorry if I've totally geeked out here for <laughs> a sec, but my point is that threshold escape velocity point doesn't make as much sense to me if we're looking at it strictly mechanistically to the degree that I think that's as plausible. Hmm. I think it's more likely the lipid hypothesis as stated and without context makes sense in a kind of more absolute fashion in the way that it's presented to us now. Yeah. Or perhaps so that there really is something to be said about the degree with which these patterns are influenced by our metabolism and metabolic pathway of what yeah. we're choosing. I, I think that's a distant third for me personally. I, it shouldn't surprise me that you you took an engineer's perspective on this and, and really thought about it differently and did the calculations and did the math and and thought about the physics of it. That that's a fits for an engineer perspective, which a, a, most physicians would not do. But I think that the physician standpoint and my standpoint is that we still have to be open to the idea that there is still some threshold or gradation of, of elevation. And that's why homozygous FH has a much worse course than heterozygous FH, knowing that that is an, you know, inborn genetic mutation. So isn't exactly the same as the situation we're talking about. But the other point is that this study won't answer that question, right? We have, we have to be open and honest about what questions this study will address and what questions it won't address. And that would be one of them. So when we think about the take-homes for people either now or more importantly at the end of the study, you know, if you're sitting with an LDL of 500 or 600, I guess the point I'm trying to make is maybe this study doesn't reflect your um, results or your pattern as much as, as we wish it would and maybe future studies will. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Or um, I, th I, think I think your statement's fine. It's, it's always difficult with how best to approach addressing this because, Brett, as you know, I, I take very seriously how, how best to say two things at the same time. <laughs> that, hey, this is a big deal, but it's not the deal. Yeah. Hey, this is a, a, a step forward, but we, there's many more steps to go, right? That this is a beginning. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of a conversation, but it's not the end of the conversation. And to the extent to where there are a lot of folks who have extremely high levels of LDL. Uh, whenever they approach me, even if you're somebody who's listening to this and you haven't approached me, I'm always saying the same thing, which is, first of all, be aware that this is uncharted territory, especially at these levels of magnitude. You know, work with your doctor, try to understand everything you can. And for what it's worth, nothing, in my opinion, beats the actual detection of the disease itself. The reason we're using CT angiograms is because it's, literally looking right at the plaque. 
Mm-hmm. So blood markers and everything else aside, uh, for anybody, in my opinion, who might be concerned about their risk or does have a number of things for which they um, would consider, you know, what their doctor would consider to be risky, I think that it might be a wise move to get a CT angiogram or at least a CAC to at least get an assessment of the baseline um, if you're still waffling, if you're still trying to figure out what you want to do next. Now, at the time we were filming this, it's been, I guess, about a week or not even a week since you since you gave your presentation. And already there have been some people responding saying, this is great news, LDL doesn't matter, that's wonderful. And then there have been some people responding saying, this is a misuse of science to report the data this way and it's totally inapplicable and you know, no conclusions can be drawn. I, I think both are a little maybe misguided, um, but uh, are you surprised by the reaction so far? And can you think of a, a, a way to prevent sort of the extremes of potential misinterpretation? So two-part question there. Uh, no and no. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm not at all surprised <laughs> by the reactions. I, you, you, you could have asked me this before I did the release. It would have been exactly the same. Of course, that there were, of course, there are a number of people who would, uh, believe that this was the death knell and that there really doesn't need to be any further research done. I of course disagree with those folks, uh, well-intentioned as they may be. Likewise, those people who are saying, oh, this, this data doesn't matter. It's already disqualified itself. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of fascinating. A friend of mine actually put it pretty well and said, look, if, if, the chief criticism you're getting right now is this population is way too healthy to be considered for their high LDL, then that's already a massive change in the conversation. And he had made a good point there, right? That that if you're already coming at this from, oh, well, we couldn't have expected a lot of plaque development in this group, that's already a, a significant difference uh, from you know how we understand lipid hypothesis today. But as I said in my talk, Brett, and as, as I'm sure uh, you probably agree with me on, there are a lot of folks who disagree with me strongly, who I think are very much well-intentioned, uh, that you know are looking out for the care of their patient. They're concerned that um, this data could get circulated and feed too much into the first group that you mentioned. And all we can do is, is continue measuring, continue putting out the data, and continue our best to try to make it a nuanced conversation. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great perspective. So what can we expect next from you then? Well, that's that's a good question. Again, there's some discussion on the preliminary paper, but really I'd, I'd want people to um, try to hold out um, before fully assessing the study until we're actually at the point of fully assessing and fully analyzing the study. That said, I will say up front that part of the decision-making process for this preliminary data was so that we could get our recruitment completed. Mm-hmm. It is a challenge. Uh, because it is true that we require a certain amount of evidence for what your blood work was before versus what your blood work is now. As you well know, a lot of people who enter the low-carb space don't always have historic blood work data right. from what they had just before they'd gone on a low-carb diet. Uh, but that is something important to us. And so while we've gone very far, and as and I can't say how many we have as of this recording, we're not yet completely there. So if anybody is listening to this and either they or somebody they know might qualify, if you don't mind me doing the plug one more time. Plug it, please. You can go to lmhrstudy.com and that'll take you to the IRB approved page. So 
until we announce otherwise, we're still recruiting. We want to close that recruiting soon, Brett, so that we can finally get to this final analysis. Right. Because whenever that last person is scanned, it's one year from then that we get the final bit of data and we can really button this thing up and find out what the data really tells us. Oh, great. Right. If, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what I really hope comes out of this release of the preliminary data to ignite the excitement and the questions um, about the study, but to get people signing up so that we can get to the data and learn as much as we can from it and know what we know, know what we don't know and decide how to move on from there. So again, I, like I said at the conference, I mean, you deserve a huge thanks for not just coming up with creative, inventive and interesting theories, but organizing the science to try and investigate those theories. It's that second step that is the most difficult step that you have taken. And I'm sure you've had lots of headaches uh, in doing so, but I think just the world of medicine is going to be much greater for it. So thank you. Thank you, Brad. Next, we're gonna hear from Dr. Matt Budoff, who's the principal investigator of this trial. So he's a professor of medicine at UCLA and the endowed chair of preventive cardiology at Harbor UCLA. He's also an author or co-author on more than 50 books and more than 2000 papers and articles. Uh, he's on the editorial board of multiple cardiovascular journals, and he's a researcher with the Lundquist Institute. He has some of the, the best pedigree, I guess you could say, from a researcher, um, very well known, very well respected with a ton of publications and experience. So I think it's important to get his perspective as the principal investigator of this study, what he thinks about the preliminary data, releasing it and some of the reaction to it. So let's hear what Dr. Budoff has to say. Dr. Matthew Budoff, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we just heard from, from Dave Feldman. So we heard about the study and we heard a lot about sort of the, the fallback or the pushback from announcing some of the preliminary data and also certainly what Dave's intentions were. But I want to rewind for a second, now that I have you on the line here that we can talk about talk to, about you getting involved in this study in the first place. I mean, as I said in the intro, you're a very decorated research in, in, in cardiology and have so many publications. And it seems like getting involved in a study like this started right off the bat with some controversy. So I'm curious if you had any hesitation with this study because of the high LDL, because, you know, guidelines say to treat, because these are patients who are not being treated and sort of going against the conventional wisdom of all LDL is elevate, or all elevated LDL is harmful and there's no debate, but yet this is sort of saying, well, maybe there is. So was there some concern about that in the beginning? I mean, I certainly thought about it. You know, I have to say though that I'm, I, I've read a lot of the work that that uh, people have put out, such as Dave and other other people have put out on on the LDL rise with with the keto diet, and and I, I really think that there is a ongoing uh, uh, question, and I think the best way to address those is to is to get some research done. So I thought it was safe. It's only one year. These are already people who are not on statins by choice, so I'm not like withholding therapy from people who wanted to start therapy. And we're only asking them for one year of observational data to see what happens to their plaque. So I didn't think it raised any ethical issues. And I thought I had enough equipoise about whether or not there would be um, extra plaque and, and what would happen that I thought it was worthwhile studying. And obviously the IRB agreed with you because they said, go ahead with the study. So that's obviously a very good sign. Uh, so now we have some of the preliminary data. So, and as I emphasized with Dave, this is preliminary data of sort of the baseline characteristics of the patients with some notable findings, but this is not outcome data. This is not 
you know, what the study was intended to do. So tell me first, like, what was the idea behind um, releasing some of the, the preliminary data and talking about it before the study was completed? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, you know, the intent of the study is to see change over the course of a year, and we have not released any of that information yet. So the study is completely, remains completely closed, and the readers here are, are completely blinded um, um, to LDL levels, to any other values that might sway their their interpretations. So nothing has changed from that perspective. We always, as a matter of practice, and almost every trial I've been involved with, um, pre prevent presents some of the baseline characteristics and presents the study to the medical community. So we we say here's you know here's what we're doing, and this is just the people we've enrolled so far, and mm -hmm. we're going to them for a year and we'll tell you if it works or not at the end of a year and we can't tell you anything yet so uh, you know i think in that light we were just trying to make people aware of the study i think it's a very interesting study i know some of my colleagues in cardiology were very excited about the prospect of learning more about this uh ldl hypothesis and whether or not it's it's detrimental or not to the coronary arteries yeah i think it's it's nice to hear you know, physicians, cardiologists, researchers with that intellectual curiosity to want to learn more. But then there's the other side of the equation too. Have you gotten some pushback from people individually saying like that they were concerned about this and maybe thought it was, it was um, unethical to do the study and how could you be involved? Have you gotten that kind of pushback as well or not so much? No, not so much. I think most cardiologists, I mean, as you said, the IRB approved it. It's ethical. It's only one year. Um, you know, these are people who are already chosen not to be on statins for their LDL. It's not like yeah. they were unaware that they had high LDL and that there was any treatment available. These are already people who've chosen this course and it's totally ethical to do the study. So I've gotten no personal pushback from the scientific community. And, yeah. and I, to be honest, I just don't participate as much in the social media community to, to know what is or is not being said. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good differentiation between your colleagues and the people you work with and do research with versus you know people on Twitter. But it's not that people on Twitter are completely off base, I'd have to say, if the presentation of the preliminary data was, look at this, the plaque is much lower, the plaque scores are much lower than we would have expected, therefore this is safe. If that was the message, then of course they would have significant pushback, but that, but that hasn't been the message. And like you said, it was just sort of presenting the preliminary data. But um, do you think there's a need for um, sort of extreme caution when presenting the preliminary data about what it shows and what it doesn't represent? No, absolutely. And I spoke with Dave Feldman quite a bit before presenting it to make sure it wasn't represented as a definitive answer or as proof of anything. We haven't matched these patients yet. Remember, these are very healthy patients. So big asterisk next to not finding a lot of plaque is these patients, except for this LDL elevation, are remarkably healthy people. And when we match them, they might match up very similarly to the population, or who knows, maybe even have more plaque than the, than once we do our matching, which is part of the uh, uh, analysis. So I, I think we it's very important not to, um, you know, derive any conclusions from this preliminary data, other than to say we've been very successful at getting patients in. Um, I think it's interesting that there's not a lot of plaque at baseline, but again, that's not the study endpoint in any way. 
And we just need to take that as a, as a point of interest and say, okay, I'm going to wait for the final results to, to make any, any conclusions. So do you think that the matching part of this will be its own paper that once the enrollment is complete and you have the baseline data, you can do the matching and publish that without having to wait for the, the full one year um, data coming back? Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be very legitimate. And obviously it will make sure, you know, the IRB and everybody else is comfortable with that uh, locally mm -hmm. here. Um, but I, I don't see any problem if we do a formal matching and just compare baseline of patients with, uh, with this uh, high LDL from a keto diet and compared to, compared to the, you know, lean mass hyperresponders compared to non, uh, to similar patients who are not on this diet. And, and see if there is differences at baseline, again, with the final conclusion having to be reserved for, for the final end of the study. Right. Now, we talked about how the plaque was presumably low, but all right, needs to be compared to, to a control. But what about, what about, or not compared but to a control, but matched to another similar group, which we talked about. But what about the FH? And I brought this up with Dave, that there was um, one patient uh, with familial hypercholesterolemia. And I bet if you if you surveyed cardiologists and said, we have a group of 64 patients with LDL averaging 233, they would probably guess, I don't know, maybe 75% of them would be FH. That's just a number I'm coming off the top of my head. But there was only one. So are you surprised by that? And what was your expectation going in for the prevalence of FH? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. I think at least 75%. And I think those patients who had LDLs above 300, uh, which was a good proportion of them, definitely would have FH, uh, heterozygous FH, no matter what. So I was very, very surprised that we only found one person out of the first 80 or so that we, that we screened with genetic testing. We've only had to exclude one person based on that value. I think that in itself is a pretty remarkable finding uh, uh, just from the preliminary data that cardiologists and physicians should take note that not all elevated LDL is FH and there are other mechanistic reasons for it, um, which sort of leads into Dave's whole hypothesis about why uh, LDL would be elevated in this situation. And I know this isn't a mechanistic study, but what do you think about that? You know, it, it's an interesting mechanism and hypothesis that he came up with, and you are a co-author on, on his other paper um, about that. Um, what, what do you think about the, the mechanism, if it, if it makes sense? Yeah, you know, I, I do. I, I think that, that it definitely has legs, and I think seeing these LDLs and seeing, you know, the lack of FH in this background of this population reinforces that obviously there's some you know, significant change in body metabolism that causes LDL to kind of go crazy, uh, if you yeah. will, in some of these patients. But again, as, as, you know, as Dave has pointed out, and I'm totally agnostic still, you know, maybe it's not as bad as, as it looks just from an LDL value by itself. Yeah, I think that I like that you said you're you're agnostic about it. And that's so important to have you as part of the study, because you're not part of the the quote unquote keto clan or the, the keto community. So I'm curious, before getting involved in this study, had you paid much attention to ketogenic diets and, and their use and for metabolic health and their risk for uh, lipids, if that is a thing, you know, had, had you paid much attention to that? You know, I've seen a few patients with the, with the ketogenic diet and, and when their LDLs come back that high, just traditional my traditional mindset kicked in. I wasn't, you know, super aware of all these different hypotheses. And I just said, yeah. look, you know, I don't mind you being on the keto diet, but I'm not comfortable with your LDL of 250. 
let's go. Yeah, you know, you want you to be on a statin uh, and get that number down. Um, and you know, if the diet's working for you and you're losing weight or achieving other goals, then then that's fine by me. So uh, I, I reacted to the LDL because there was no other data to to uh, assure me that it wasn't pathological. So do you think this study will help change that approach or do you think it's a first step for what will come next, which then would alter clinical practice? Or do you think the study is enough if you get, you know, results that certainly Dave expects or hopes for, uh, would it be enough to change clinical practice? I think it may. I think we, we've seen these type of well, well-controlled CT angiography trials be able to change practice patterns. Uh, we did it with icosapentethyl with a fish oil supplement, Vasipa. Um, we did a trial called Evaporate and clearly had good uptake by the community, seeing that it reduces plaque in the coronary. So that was very supplemental data that people really reacted well to. And I think this will be very reassuring for those patient, for those doctors or those patients who believe that this may not be so pathological and can, can just, uh, you know, observe it rather than actively treat it. It's obviously not going to change the practice patterns of all. There are going to be some people who say, I don't sure. care. I don't, I don't believe an LDL above 190 should ever exist, and I'm going to get rid of it whenever I meet that number. And that's obviously not going to change their practice patterns. But I think this will go a long way to reassure those people. And if it does work out that way, and again, a big if, but if it does work out the way that that Dave hopes it does, and again, I'm I'm totally on the fence here, but if it does work out positive that it's not pathological and it's not causing atherosclerosis, I think that's you know remarkably reassuring for those of us who run into these patients on a keto diet who don't want to take a statin and maybe they're maybe they're correct and maybe we can we can just keep an eye on them and and not be so worried. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I should I I phrase it this way, but maybe I shouldn't the way that Dave hopes it turns out and he's always been clear that he's cautiously optimistic, but he just wants to be able to answer the question. He does one way or the other, he wants to know and it's not that he's He's purely vested in it turning out one way. But I guess part of the issue is, and this has been brought up by some of the uh, criticism on social media, is that it's a one-year study. And, you know, cardiovascular disease is a decades-long process. So is it reassuring enough at a one-year study or, or, you know, is it just a drop in the bucket? I mean, how do you respond to those criticisms? Looking at plaque progression, all of our trials are one year. So this is, it's not an outcome study. I agree if we're looking at outcomes and we want to show that there's going to be more heart attacks or strokes or no increase in heart attack or strokes, we need a much larger and a much longer study. But these patients are coming in on average with four years of these type of LDL elevations and some of them much longer than that. So we will have, in some patients, perhaps a decade of exposure when we look at these CT angios. But the mm -hmm. one-year defined endpoint matches up with all the other one-year studies, which will allow us to match these patients to other patients who have two CT angios at one year apart. That's why we designed the trial to be parallel to all the others. So from a plaque progression standpoint, one year is absolutely standard. Uh, and there can be no pushback because that's just how all the trials are done. From a proof that it doesn't cause a heart attack, I agree. It's a decades-long process or decades-long process and needs needs more time if you really wanted to prove outcomes. 
Yeah, but I think that's a fantastic point to compare it to the existing literature and the standard for plaque progression studies with CT angiogram. And one year, as you said, is absolutely the standard. So I think that's great that it was designed that way and can be compared. And of course, all this is coming. This is going to be data coming in one year, two years, three years down the road. So it's something to look forward to, but clearly nothing conclusive yet. Um, I wanted to bring up one more thing, though. There was a, another comment about are there safety protocols that if someone was enrolled in this trial with an LDL of 230, not on lipid-lowering therapy, and had you know a 70% LAD stenosis, is there something, is there a protocol in place to address that, or does it just continue as as part of the study? No, so absolutely. So I I my my primary role is I do the safety reads. So I'm not reading for plaque quantification. I'm looking for high-grade stenosis, left main disease, multivessel disease. And then if we find that for any study, I reach out to the participant, make sure they're not having symptoms. Um, you know, And if they are, then they need to be intervened upon. And we're not going to just watch them for a year and hope that they live another year to, to help our <laughs> trial. So no, there's definitely, that's my role in the trial. And uh, we read all the studies the day or the day of or the day after they're performed for that safety purpose specifically. Yeah, okay, well, that's very good to hear. And, you know, I think as with a lot of things, when when we're dealing with, you know, part of the information and interpretations of information that maybe wasn't explicitly said by those involved, things can get out of control and things can, can kind of blow up. And I think that is a little bit, uh, that is what happened in this case. But certainly speaking with you, it seems very reasonable the way you're approaching this. And I think it's wonderful to have you involved in this study. Do you have any other take-homes or, or last comments you want to make about the study and the data presented and kind of what we can expect in the future? No, you know, I, I think that, that you know, I, again, I just would caution anybody from making any firm conclusions. This was, this was just presented as kind of what we've seen so far. And I, I think it's of interest. Um, again, all of the participants, nobody has dropped out of the trial based on, on this presentation. Um, I've had a couple of people reach out to me and um, said that they're, you know, they're glad that they're participating and, and are planning on completing their, their one year participation. And we've had a lot more people who've shown interest since, since the presentation. So I think it will achieve its goal. Dave's goal was only to stir stir excitement to get more enrollment so we can finish the enrollment of the trial so we can answer the question because we were kind of stalled at about 80 patients looking for 100 and we wanted to get that final push over the top so i think that was our intent i think that was what's happening we're seeing a lot of phone calls of people who are interested in participating and again no we're, we're not you know writing up any papers with any conclusions as far as the safety or lack of safety of having an ldl this high at this point great well thank you so much for clarifying all that and thanks for taking the time to meet with me today it's a, it's a pleasure thank you for having me on well that's a wrap on this issue of the lean mass hyperresponder study the preliminary data and some of the blowback and criticism about that data but i think as you can see as presented by dave and by dr budoff it it seems like it was very reasonable to pre to present the baseline characteristics to help generate some excitement to finish the enrollment but it does have to be messaged very carefully right this is not conclusive data this is not outcome data it hasn't been compared to a, uh, a matched group. Those are all things that are going to happen. There's going to be a lot of information coming, but we don't have that information yet. So yes, there's a very low rate of familial hypercholesterolemia. And yes, there was a subjectively low rate of plaque, but what does that really mean? Well, we don't know until it's compared to a, a matched group. So there's much more to come. 
but this is science. This is how science is done. And, and this is why we need excitement about this to ask questions, generate hypotheses and, and start the studies, which is ex exactly what they're doing. So I look forward to reporting again when we, when we get the outcome data and uh, it's going to be very interesting. Of course, we have to be careful how we interpret it. Of course, we have to be careful how we message it. And, uh, and I'm here to help with that. So hopefully this was uh, helpful for you to help understand a little bit better um, what these preliminary data mean and what's yet to come. Thanks a lot. We'll see you here next time on the Diet Doctor podcast.